pray. Lord, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to be here today. We ask you to, as I have already asked, that you would bless this hour. Put it on the hearts of your people now, Lord, to ask you for the same. May by your spirit, they each and I myself as well be pleading with you to let your word speak clearly to us, to change us, to remind us of your sovereign goodness, majesty over us, and the benefits that we have, having been justified by faith, by your grace, because of Christ. May all of it come together today to fill us on the one hand with godly fear, knowing that much of what you ordain for this world is, are not things that we desire, but you are working out your purposes. And so we praise you, and we joyfully thank, thank you. And we ask you, Father, now to protect us from error and fill us with your truth and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, before we get started, the sermon this morning, the elders have asked me to speak to you about an unusual uh, issue, a geopolitical issue, actually, that I believe is so important to faithful churches at large that it warrants this kind of intrusion on our normal um, worship service agenda. I only know of one other time when we've done something like this before, and so it, it must be something important, and I want to talk to you about it. If, if you look on your bulletin printout, uh, the first point is the war against God. We talked about that last time we were together. Um, but here, uh, in fact, last time we were together, I, I, I kind of mentioned backhandedly, so to speak, that I would be talking about this this week a practical way in which the world is at war with God. And so let's think about this for a minute. As many of you know, the world's hatred for God and his word is becoming clearer and clearer, and greater focus in these recent days, especially, some of you know, in Alberta, Canada. We've recently learned that Bill C-4, they call it C-4, passed through the House and the Senate without any opposition, not even any opposition from the Conservative Party, which will make sense to you in just a minute. It received royal assent on December 8th, which means it will come into law on January 8th, which means that was last week. So what I'm about to tell you is already law. What this means is that according to Canadian law, as of January 8, 2022, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality will now be officially, officially viewed as a myth. It also imposes a strict ban on what they call conversion therapy. Now, there is a conversion therapy uh, that has been attempted by secularists for those who have uh, unwanted same-sex attraction and homosexuality, and, and, and that's not the kind of thing we're talking about, it, that, at least that we engage in here at the church. When, people, when we talk to people about their unwanted same-sex attraction, we only do it because they ask us for help, and we bring them the Word of God. So that's what this is mainly all about. The bill defines conversion therapy as, and I quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to, here are some bullet points, designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the, pers to, uh, to, assigned to the person at birth, represses or reduces non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, represses, represses a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress or reduce person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to them at birth. This definition is 
intentionally broad, and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder. Whoever speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexuality or transgender actions and lifestyle. This means that as of January the 8th, last week, it is now against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality in Canada. The law says, and I quote again, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including providing con uh, conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of no greater than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of no more than two years. On January 16th, that would be today, faithful men all across Canada and many, many, I suspect hundreds or even thousands, this very day, right now, as I'm speaking, so are they. And they are preaching today on God's design for <laughs> biblical sexuality and marriage. And they are doing it illegally. Declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church. And that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit of his church. This morning, many faithful American ministers of the uh, preachers of the word are preaching messages on biblical sexuality in defiance of the Canadian government's new law. And my purpose for you this morning is to declare on behalf of the elders and I think on behalf of our whole church to these dear brothers, we stand with you. We believe what you believe. We preach what you preach. And the only reason I'm not preaching on this prescribed uh, issue this morning is because I already have. Uh, recently in Romans chapter 1, which wasn't very far away, as you count chapters maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want to break up Romans today. Furthermore, um, in 2017, we amended our official bylaws to reflect a biblical position on gender and sexuality. We did that 2017 because we saw these things coming. We hope that our united stand will put the Canadian and the U.S. governments on notice that they have attacked not the traditions of men, but the very word of God. We are all well aware of the evil power and destructive influence of the homosexual and transgender ideology. Our government is bent on not only normalizing this perversion, but also legalizing it and criminalizing any opposition to it. It's also important to understand that this is not a phenomenon only taking place in Canada. In 2012, in California, California passed Senate Bill 1172 banning gay conversion. Alongside with New York, New Jersey, go figure, my home state, Nevada, and in doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of, a, of an unbiblical view of sexual identity because, and I quote, California has a compelling interest in protecting the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals, end quote. Furthermore, on August 18, 2020, the Democratic Party in the United States declared at the National Convention that it would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LGBTQ plus 
people to serve in the government. The Biden administration has promised to increase that number, and they have. As aggressive as this political party priority is to make perversion safe from criticism in the United States and Canada, Canada is, is actually far ahead of us. But we shouldn't take that to mean that it's not coming. We know that this is what God wants us to preach. I'll just give you one example, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And by the way, what I'm about to you, read to you is not only the Holy Scriptures, but I can tell you, based on my own personal counseling of people who come not wanting the desires that they have and seeing wonderful success. And here's what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to this list. Neither the sexually immoral, or, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this next phrase. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. Implication, not anymore. There has been conversion. There has been change. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You see, all sinners need conversion. I needed conversion. You need conversion. We all needed conversion. But this biblical list focuses especially on the sexually immoral, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals. And these who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so our calling as ministers of the gospel, not just people in pulpits, but you who love Christ and know Christ and know his word, is, is to preach the truth in love, to confront sin, to call all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, the good news that achieves soul conversion and saves sinners from eternal wrath. The state is now telling our brothers in Canada, you must not do that. And Jesus says, you must do this. And we believe that divine love and sovereign grace compel us to be faithful to proclaiming the radical transformation the gospel offers and do so at any cost. It's downright providential that Damon Cup has been speaking on persecution these last couple of weeks, and I'm not saying we're under, under persecution. But as he mentioned this morning, it was rattling around in my head as he was teaching, and he eventually said it later in his hour, that in one of the persecutions, the emperor only required that you would come and take a pinch of incense, drop it on the fire. You didn't have to make any promises. You didn't have to uh, decry Christianity. You didn't have to meet with anyone. All you had to do was come and drop the offering onto the fire. And the Christians would not. I, I see a parallel here. The world thinks that what they're asking us to concede is of little consequence. All you have to do is agree with us. All you have to do is say that we are right. And we can't. This world system and its human governments will gladly send people to hell, but our calling is to rescue the perishing with the truth of God's word. And 2 Timothy 2 tells us how to do it. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, everyone. To be, to be patient with all, enduring, enduring hardship, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been captured by him to do his will. 
That's the motive and the tone of such ministry. As I was repairing these remarks, I, I learned, as stunning as all of this is, I learned that Great Britain also has a similar bill that's moving toward becoming law. Moreover, uh, even after this, I got an email. While I was typing these things, I got an email from Lafayette, Indiana, where a number of us have been trained in biblical counseling multiple times, that their city council is also pushing for a law in their city that reflects this same priorities. As a church, I'm speaking of this church, as a church that offers biblical counseling without charge to anyone who seeks it, Calvary Bible Church has good reason to be concerned. We are living in a time that will require much courage and much prayer. And may the Lord find us faithful in being those kinds of people. I've asked a couple of the elders to come and pray. Jason, would you come? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> for this opportunity to stand united with our brothers and sisters in these other places around the world, around this country, Father, north of us in Canada. All of these brothers and sisters who are beginning to face greater difficulty as they seek to remain faithful to the teaching of your word. We thank you, Father, as your apostles did in the very earliest days of the church. And Father, we rejoice at the thought that some of our numbers should be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. But Father, we also confess that this is not easy. As we look at what is the increasing willingness of government and government officials to formally and legally push back against what your word teaches, we might be tempted to think that this is not a good thing for us or for our brothers, Father, that somehow that this is outside of your control and your word teaches that this is absolutely under your control and a part of your good plan. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us a heart that says and acknowledges that while they intend it for evil, that you intend it for good. And, Father, that as our brothers and sisters, especially as they start in these other places to face increased difficulty, uh, eventually persecution even, uh, Father, that they, as uh, your people have from the very beginning, would count the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. Father, we ask that you would strengthen our brothers and sisters, your servants, in their resolve to honor you in their preaching, in their teaching, in their counseling. Father, that they would be, continue to be your vessels for the only hope that is available to a world that is dying under the curse of sin. Father, the only hope for this world is the truth of Jesus Christ and his salvation from our sin. Father, we pray that where that calls for life transformation, that your people would continue to be diligent to minister that hope, no matter the obstacles that, that are put up in our way. And Father, we pray that uh, you would protect and bless and prosper, as you always have, the testimony of your church around the world in the face of opposition. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Father, you have made it clear as it relates to how we think about governing authorities, what it is that is our work. Uh, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. And Father, you call us to supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, with the purpose that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because this is good and it's pleasing 
in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, Father, we pray for those in high, powerful positions. We pray for these men and women who have made this egregious law in Canada and who are considering things elsewhere. Uh, and, Father, we pray that you would save them. We pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would show them um, the sin in their lives, that you would call them to repentance, and that you would show them the greatness of your wisdom and the superior satisfaction that Jesus is above all else. Father, we thank you that in this place on the face of the earth, we, we don't suffer under such things. And we thank you for leaders who um, seem to acknowledge you generally. And Father, we pray that for your people who are in positions of leadership, you would give them great strength, that you would call them uh, to stand for truth, to stand for you, and to be your witnesses uh, in these halls of power. But most of all, Father, we pray that you would grant repentance, that you would bring to faith uh, these men and women uh, for your glory and for the joy of your people. And Father, as we continue in this worship service, would you be glorified in our hearts as we rejoice in you, the God of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. And now to Romans. I was hoping to cover more than one point this morning, but that's not going to be possible. <laughs> we talked about the war against God. Let's, let's jump back into where we were last time. Uh, we talked about peace with God, and we'll talk a little bit about that again, uh, not only today, but later. Our sermon for this morning picks up where we left off in Romans chapter 5. Last week I said the question that Paul seemed to be asking or answering here for the believers in Rome is this. How can we be sure that justification by faith is enough? How do we know that when we get to the end and we come before God that we will not be judged for our sin? How can we know that justification is sufficient to bring, to bring us all the way to glory? How can we be certain that we have no need to fear God's wrath? These are questions about the believer's security. How can I know that I will never lose my salvation? And that's a great question. And Paul's answer should be a huge encouragement to anyone who studies these verses, anyone who has struggled with their assurance I hope that this message and messages that are to come will be greatly beneficial and encouraging to you. Last time I mentioned that Paul's answer to this question has several parts. Explaining these precious truths one after another is, is like dropping great anchors designed to stabilize and preserve the, the ship of faith, as it were. And each one of these anchors or each one of these gifts come to us as the overflow of our justification, guaranteeing that our salvation is absolutely secure. You may remember that the first of these anchors was peace with God. And if you weren't here for that last week, it may not mean what you think it means. So we don't have time to go back to that. You can... Get on the website and listen to that again. But let me just give you a brief uh, reminder. We invested significant time last week. I can summarize all of this saying that the scriptures are clear in their declaration that all sinners come into the world at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God. He talks about that in Ephesians. He talks about it here in Romans. He talks about it in in other books, every man and woman born into the world has a natural propensity toward resisting God. By nature, sinners are at war with him and he with us. 
But when a sinner repents of their sin and hangs all of their hope for salvation on the finished work of Jesus Christ in his perfect life and bloody death and resurrection, believing that Christ alone can save, in that moment God declares them righteous in his sight. He promises them, or he pronounces them not guilty, not guilty and justified by grace through faith because of Christ. The result of that legal declaration is that sinners are granted peace with God. In that moment, God, who has previously been your enemy and judge, now becomes your heavenly Father, your gracious Father, your loving Father. Not by works, but as a gracious, unretractable gift of God. And so the first anchor of truth that assures that our security is intact as believers is peace with God out from justification or the overflow of your justification is you get peace with God. But that's not where it stops. It continues. The second anchor we receive as the overflow of our justification is access to God. Now we're going to spend the rest of our morning on this one. Access to God. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. We are in Romans 5. And I believe we have not read the text together. So just sit there and I will read it for us, okay? Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a wonderful text. And if you didn't pick up on it, you could just see gift after gift after gift after gift after gift, the overflow of your justification. You don't only get a declaration that you are righteous in God's sight, but you get all of these other things that assure you that you are absolutely secure. So verse 2, we're only going to talk about a part of it, where Paul writes, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The word also here at the beginning points to the second anchor. Also says there's something more. And so we have our second anchor. It comes from the overflow of justification. Since we have been justified by faith, we not only have peace with God, we also have access to God. Now, access here, the word access, look at it, at it in your Bible. If you have the ESV, it says access. But it might be better rendered introduction. Now, that doesn't sound anything like access, so let me explain. The word introduction conveys the idea that one who, the idea of one who secures for his friend an audience with the king, bringing him into the king's private chamber, properly attired into his presence and favor, establishing a relationship with the king. And so having been clothed in righteousness through justification, the believer is, is, is immediately brought in, as it were, into the, the private chambers of the king where he is formally introduced now as a child of God, no longer an enemy. You see how these link peace with God, access to God. You can't have access with God without first having peace with God, and you can't have peace with God until you are justified in his sight. So, in fact, Christ, our mediator, is the friend. He is the one who makes the introduction 
He is the one who clothes us in righteousness, takes us into the king's private chamber, introduces us to God the Father. You see, beloved, we have to be brought into the presence of God by another. You cannot come into the presence of God alone. And we know this. I mean, we, we, there are many, many places we can't go unless someone takes us. I heard Tom Pennington this week talk about an opportunity he had years ago back when uh, Reagan was the president. And through a, a network of friendships, he got invited to the White House, and after hours, he got the grand tour. And his question was, if I didn't have that friend in the White, in the White House, do you think I'd be able to drive up and say, hey, I'd like to see the Oval Office, and they'd let you in? Are you kidding? The uh, armed guards would <laughs> probably carry you out. You can't just walk into the king's chambers. But Jesus Christ, our mediator, takes us to his Father, introduces us, introduces us to him and him to us, and we become his adopted child, and he becomes our forever Father. And every moment you, in the very moment that you are justified, you are granted the privilege of permanent access to the Father, the King. Notice the word obtained here, again in verse 2. Obtained is a verb that indicates ongoing results from a previous action. In other words, now that Jesus has formally introduced you, you have the privilege of having access the door to his private chamber is always open to you forever. This is all about a new relationship, a new relationship with God. And it beautifully illustrates what Jesus had in mind when in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, he says this, Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, it will be opened to him. This is access. This is approachability. Beloved, this is a picture of the unhindered approachability of your heavenly Father. And you say, well, I'm not worthy of that. Christ has made you worthy. You will never be worthy of it in your, on your own. You will never be good enough in terms of your behavior, your morality. But you are wrapped in the robes of Christ. You are dressed in his righteousness. Once again, for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, this is really shocking if you understand the Old Testament. There's a radical change in a person's relationship with God. In one sense, the Old Testament is a narrative, is a long, long narrative about separation from God. You remember from all the way back in Genesis 3 that the result of Adam's sin was that the man and his wife was ejected from the garden. It went from fellowship to no fellowship. It went from access to to no access. And throughout history, the history of Israel in particular, the status of God's relationship to man could be summed up in one word, inaccessible. God was inaccessible. He was unapproachable to virtually everyone. And the only exceptions were the very few special men through whom God spoke to people on his behalf, men like Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and other prophets. But if you are not a prophet of God, the Lord's presence was closed to you. There was no welcome. There was no come, ask, seek, knock. No, no, no. You had to go through the priesthood. This is vividly displayed in Exodus 19. And you remember what happened in Exodus, right? The people are rescued. God rescues them from Egypt. 
They find themselves in Arabia, at the foot of Mount Sinai. God appeared with thunder and lightning and fire, and he tells Moses that he intends to come down to the mountain so the people could hear God speak to Moses. But God said in verse 12, You shall set bounds for the people around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. In verse 21, again, he says, God tells Moses to warn the people that they should not break through to the Lord to gaze. You know, it, it, you can hear God speak, but you can't see what's going on. Don't try to climb to the peak of that mountain and look over. You will be struck dead. Not even the consecrated priests were allowed to approach the presence of God. To them, he was unapproachable and inaccessible. And then later on, when God had Moses build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, as it was called, there were basically two rooms in the tent of meeting. The first one was called the holy place, and that's where the priest would go in day after day, and they would hand, handle the, the table of showbread, replacing the bread. They would make sure that there was oil in the golden lampstand. They would do other things. They had the incense, the altar of incense that they would uh, worship before. This was the holy place. And the only people who were allowed in it were designated priests. But there was another room behind that room, separated by a curtain. And, and that room was called the Holy of Holies, where the visible presence of God resided as if seated on the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the Mercy Seat. It was, in a sense, the throne of God, sitting on the Mercy Seat. And it appeared as fire and light. The Mercy Seat, the Ark of the Covenant. But, beloved, even... Into that room, no one could go except once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Even then, only the high priest could go in, and he would go, no doubt, with fear and trembling. He had a little bowl with the blood of the sacrifice. He would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would get out of there as fast as he could. Even then, the priests were were in or God was inaccessible to them personally. Eventually, God had Solomon turn the temple into, I mean the, the tabernacle into the temple. It became a, a massive, gorgeous, beautiful building. And in the middle of it, separating the holy place and the holy of holies was the massive curtain, a veil that separated the two rooms. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes along and he enters the temple, as he probably had many times as a priest, and yet on this particular day when he stepped in, the Lord was there high and lifted up. And do you remember Isaiah's response? He didn't say, oh, it's you, Lord. He threw himself to the ground and began, began verbalizing curses upon himself. Woe is me, for I am undone. My eyes have seen the Holy One. Even in this, the great prophet of God could not approach God. Not until God did something for him, which is not the focus of this message today. In fact, the very architecture of the temple courtyard later on was designed to keep people out there were three basic sections. There was a large section called the Court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could come. It was huge, a huge courtyard. Much of it is still there today in Israel. It's a massive place. But kind of on the outskirts all the way around was the Court of the Gentiles. And then there was another court. You had to pass through a little barrier, and it was the Court of the Women. The women were allowed to get a little closer. And then there was another barrier. By the way, there was a sign on the, on, on the barrier 
at the court of the Gentiles that said, no Gentile may pass through upon penalty of death. Then after the court of the women, the women were able to get closer. The priests were allowed to get even closer. But then again, we have only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies. It really was a system of separation. God went out of his way to remain transcendent and inaccessible. But then, on the first Christmas morning, God came near. The transcendent, unapproachable God became a man. And everyone who desired to approach him was granted physical access. And on the day that he was crucified for our transgressions, do you remember what happened? That great veil that separated the outer room from the inner room, the Holy of Holies, was torn in two from top to bottom, not by the priests, but by God himself. What did that mean? I believe it was God's way of saying, the death of my son has granted you access. You who believe. The substitutionary death of Jesus for sinners made the unapproachable God accessible. And now the gospel of Jesus Christ is offered as an invitation to all people to repent and believe so that their sins can be, as sinners, they can be justified and and granted access to God, indeed fellowship with God. And listen to how Peter describes it in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ Jesus also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, why? That he might bring us to God. This is what Paul's talking about. We have our introduction to God, with God, because of Jesus Christ. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.18, For through him, that is, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Again, in Ephesians 3.12, we read, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence, through our faith in him. This is justification by faith gives us access. You think about the book of Hebrews, there are two phrases in the book of Hebrews that stand out. The first is hold fast, and the other, do you know? Draw near. Draw near. Hold fast. Draw near. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, one of the most precious verses in the New Testament, we read this. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of what? The throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. What is that? That's access, direct access to the Father. You see, beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes the unapproachable God totally accessible for those who are justified, who have peace with God. How could you ever think that God would ever judge you? He has made peace with you. He has granted personal access to you. Do you think he would ever revoke that? Do you think any of your sins could be so great that God would take all of that back? After the price he paid? I want you to notice here that the author of Hebrews speaks of God's throne. And when he does, he calls it the throne of grace. And perhaps this is why Paul, what, what Paul was thinking of when he wrote chapter 5, verse 2. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith. Watch this into this grace in which we stand. You have access to God 
And where God is your Father, there is grace. There is grace. In fact, it is the grace upon which we stand. Notice that Paul says, we have attained access into this grace. Now, now this is an unusual use of the word grace. If I were to ask you, let me just ask you, what's the definition of grace? And don't answer me, because I don't want to tell you you're right or wrong. But, but let me give you a definition of grace that you're familiar with. Uh, unmerited favor, right? Or you might say God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace, and that's right. But if you look at 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul is crying out to God three times, take this thorn in the flesh away from me, and he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in what class? Weakness. Paul, I want you weak so that you will be strong. The grace there is not unmerited favor, it's power. It's not power to heal yourself. It's power to respond to whatever trial you're experiencing in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, in a manner that glorifies God. In order for you to do that, it requires superhuman power. It comes only from the Holy Spirit. So there's two kinds of grace. And I want to submit to you that there's a third kind of grace that he's mentioning here. The third way here in chapter 5, 1 and 2, we discover a kind of grace that we rarely think about. Paul describes it as something we have access to, something upon which we stand or in which we stand. This kind of grace is a grace in which the believer lives. You live in this grace the picture here is like living in a household, the household of God, where there is absolute peace with God and where we have, been, we have unhindered access to God. It's as if Paul has in mind a palace. You are first justified. You have peace with God. Someone, a mediator, Jesus we know, dresses you appropriately to meet the king. You're wrapped in robes of righteousness. You're brought into his personal chamber. You are accepted by him as his child. You now, he, he now is your father, and you now live in his home, in his house, in his palace. This is the place where you stand. It is, if I can call it this, the palace of grace. It is where you as a believer live. You're not just standing there waiting for something to happen. This is where you live. Before you were justified, you stood outside the palace. You had no one to usher you in, and you would have been killed on the spot because you were an enemy of God. But not anymore. One day you heard the gospel and believed. You repented of your sin and trusted in Christ. And on that very day, God's Son dressed you in his own robes and led you into the king's private chamber and made you a citizen, as it were, a family member in his palace. The palace of grace. The place in which we stand you are sitting in the pew right now and you are a child of God by grace through faith, i got to tell you, at least in this regard, you're not sitting at all. You're standing. You are settled in. You are permanently fixed in your place in the palace of grace. Paul wants you to know that we were universally condemned by God's law, but now... We live in the arms of grace. Now we stand in the mansion of grace. Now we abide in the atmosphere of grace. Why? Well, because we have peace with God. We, we have been granted unhindered access to God. How could we have access to God if we're not in his palace? 
This is the place where we stand. We are now have unhindered access to God whose inclination now toward you is not condemnation, but love and acceptance and joy. And you're thinking, you're thinking, how could he love me? I mean, if you knew how sinful I am, he knows how sinful you are. He is the one who has brought you into this palace of grace. My friend, if you have been justified by faith, you now live in this palace, not the dungeon of law, but the palace of grace. So here's a practical question. What do you need from God? What do you need? You have peace with God. You have access to God. You live in his palace. What do you need? I mean, that's what grace is about, right? God giving, God giving, God giving. It is a gift of God. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a what? It is the gift of God. That's what grace is. It's always, whether it's, it's, it's grace number one, grace number two, grace number three, all of it is a gift. Each one is a gift. And the Lord has bid you to come and ask. So what do you need today? You want to worship God with your whole heart and you just feel like you can just never get there? Beloved, I'm here to tell you this morning, there's grace for that. You need wisdom for life, decisions, hardships. You live in the palace of grace. There's grace for that. Do you need assurance? There's grace for that. Do you need peace that passes all understanding to guard your heart and your mind? There's grace for that. You don't have to look to the world. You don't have to try to earn it through the law. You stand in grace. You live in the palace of grace. You didn't put yourself there. You didn't find your way there. You didn't stumble there. God rescued you and put you there. Do you need real and lasting change? Even if you are one that we talked about earlier today who is struggling with same-sex attraction or something else, do you need radical change? There's grace for that. Have you sinned? Your father will not kick you out of the palace because of your sin. You simply need his fatherly forgiveness. There's grace for that. There's grace for that. And so the guiding principle in the palace of grace is this. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Why? Because you live not on the outside, but on the inside of the palace of grace. It is that place in which you stand as a believer. What does your heavenly Father demand of you? Only this, that you stand in grace. You live in grace. That you rest in grace. That you abide in grace, come what may. The Apostle Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 5, 12. It's kind of an offhanded comment. It kind of reads funny here at the beginning. It says, through Sylvanius, whoever he is, apparently he was the guy writing the letter on Peter's behalf, through Sylvanius, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying to you that this is the true gospel of grace. And then he says, stand in it. <laughs> stand in it. Plant your feet and stand in it. You say, well, I don't, I don't feel like I, I, I love God right now. Stand in grace. Plead with him for what you need. But even in that, the whole issue of forgiveness, he does not expect that you will stand on your own. He does not expect that you can somehow strengthen yourself by obedience to the law. No. 
by his grace, listen to this, he's commanding you to stand, but he gives what, you, what he commands. He's commanding you to stand in grace. Why, why would you want to stand anywhere else? Why would you want to live anywhere else? He gives what he commands. By the way, beloved, this is why I end nearly every worship service at Calvary Bible Church with the same benediction. I know there are others. Some of you have pointed some of the others out to me. <laughs> Get it? I read my Bible. <laughs> but from the book of Jude, through which the Holy Spirit commands this, keep yourselves in the love of God. I think he's saying the same thing. Stand in grace. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You know what that tells me? That tells me we have a part to play in here. This is not passivity. Yes, our salvation is a monergistic act of God. He did it by himself. But in sanctification, we are to engage. We are to cultivate things in our hearts. We are to cultivate disciplines and affections. You need to be engaged. And so... It's perfectly appropriate for Jude to say, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he says, and here's the benediction, now to him who is able to keep you. This is God, your king, your father, the head of your household. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. You see, there are two introductions. You get introduced to God the moment that you're justified. And then one day, eschatologically speaking, the Apostle Paul looks forward to presenting you to Christ. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling before the presence of his glory, you see, beloved, because of your justification, you live in the palace of grace. And so whatever you need, there's grace. John R. W. Stott writes, Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, is not sporadic, but continuous, not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with politicians and the public. No, we stand in it, for that is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Is your justification sufficient to take you all the way home? Should you have any fear that in the end you will be condemned? If I could just use a Pauline word, meganoita, may it never be. It cannot happen in a thousand years, 10,000 years. Why? Well, because the overflow of your justification includes union with Christ, peace with God, Access to God in the palace of grace. As Paul declares in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So beloved, rest in grace. Worship in grace. Confess sin and repent in grace. Be content with who you are and what you have by grace. And stand in grace by the power of his grace. All is grace. All is grace. Beloved, justification by faith is proved sufficient by the eternal gifts that God secures for you by grace. Let's pray. Lord, we're so overawed by these things. And I know that we're only scratching the surface touching the hem of your garment, as it were. There is so much more. Thank you for giving us the grace to comprehend enough of it that we can rejoice in it. 
and repent in it and worship in it. Father, I pray that you would use it to change us for your glory and for our joy, we pray.